It was January, and my desire was, like it is yours, to make some change of transformation in my life. But most of the time, by February, which it is now, I've given up on that. So the thought was, well, what if we did some material together, and we all worked on it together, and we didn't just do it in the service, but we tried to do it at home, and we tried to encourage each other, and maybe we'd get in small groups and study it. And, and in many ways, a lot of those things have begun to happen. In fact, some of you know that tomorrow night, um, several, I think there's four women's groups that are doing Daniel plan material, and that's material that's based, that comes out of, of this, in terms of making changes in our physical lives, in our spiritual lives. I'd encourage you to get in that, ladies. Gentlemen, there's a guys group, it started this Wednesday night, it moves to Mondays this week. Monday night, they had somewhere between 10 and 15 guys out, going through this material, this groundwork material, to make change in your life. Now, the key to this, if you've been around, was to set goals. Oh, wow, they're even handing out the notebooks, too. The key to this material was to set goals. That was week one. If you remember, the, the real revelation of week one was this. I know when you were in high school, you had goals for your life. You were going to go to college, and you were going to get married, and you were going to have a career, and a house, and a car, and kids. And then for so many of us, we turned 30, and we never had another goal. And so we just drift along kind of aimlessly towards retirement. Our next goal is retirement. That's a long way to live without a goal. And so we talked about what would it be like if we set some God-sized goals, some, some big dream goals in seven key areas of our lives. And that's what we're working through. And to do that, I'm asking you if you would do a few things. Number one, do four devotions a week. Ten minutes a week. Not much, excuse me, ten minutes, four times a week. Ten minutes. Ten minutes. Over coffee, at lunch. There's four devotions related to the topic every week that are, are, are there for you. That's number one. Number two, I'm, I'm putting out sermon notes every week so you can kind of stay with this. You can work through this. You can take it home and think about it. You can hear it and see it and, in a sense, touch it. So there's sermon notes there for you today that you can fill out. If you need a pen, there's pens in the baskets at the end of your aisles. So you can fill that out and walk um, through it. And the key is to put goals down for each of these areas. The last Sunday of this material, we're going to talk about what we're going to do with those goals. All right? So that's where we are. That's what we've been doing. Today, we're going to look at something a little bit different. We've talked about our spiritual health, our physical health, and our emotional health. Today, we're going to look at one that I bet none of us have ever set a goal in ever or even considered something important that we should focus on. And that's this, our relational health, our relationships, having good and healthy relationships. So, Every week I'm asking you to just memorize a quick memory verse. Put it on your, your counter, put it on your fridge, put it on your mirror, wherever. But you would just get a memory verse, one for each one of these topics, so you, it would come back to you. You'd hide God's word in your heart and then it would come back to you. So this is this week's memory verse. Let's, uh, let's read it together. It's from 1 Peter, okay? Throw that up there. Before we read it, let me just... Some guy said to me, the most meaningful thing you said was this right here, so you can check out after this. But notice how, how it starts. Above all else, don't just read that. Think about what the Bible is saying. Above all else, and that's a lot of things. Now let's read it together. Above all, love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. As I've looked in January and said, here's some changes I want to make in my life. Most of them have to do with getting more physically fit, eating better, maybe my financial well-being, um, reading some more, watching some less TV. But if you're like me, one thing that I have never really looked at in my life, let alone thought about making a resolution to focus on, 
are relationships. The relationships I have in my life. For most of us, relationships aren't something that we seek or something that we try to work on. They're just something that naturally occur. Uh, you know, we're born into uh, certain relationships. With other people, these relationships just happen, or, or maybe they don't have them. If we have them, great. If we don't, that's eh, not a big deal. If our relationships are strained, well, it's usually someone else's fault. You know, that's why I don't talk to my brother anymore. Um, and if we don't have a lot of relationships, it's really no big deal because I don't need God anyway. All right, excuse me, I don't need friends anyway. It's just me and God, and, I, you know, I've got a, I've got a dog. So I don't, I, don't need, I don't need relationships. And you, you guys know people like this, right? I don't, I, don't, I don't need any of that. Now, as I've looked at this topic in my own life, I did kind of a quick perusal about relational stuff, especially in our culture, kind of outside of New York City here in 2015. And two things came to my mind as I just reflected on it and looked around at the state of our relationships. May I make two observations on your relationships, perhaps? Um, no throwing things if you don't agree. Here's the first one. The first one is that our relationships seem to be fewer and fewer as a society. We continue to isolate ourselves from each other at alarmingly increasing rates. Some of you know of Tim Keller. He's a pretty bright um, pastor in New York City. He spoke of this as he pointed out how the American neighborhood has made the transition from a front porch society to a back porch society. You see, if you ever lived in the cities, my mom and dad grew up in, in, in Newark, and there was a front porch on every house. And if you wanted to go to the store in the city, you walked down a block or two, and you walked by 10, 12, 15 houses on your way to the store. And so you had no choice but to deal with and say hello to and shake a hand with and have a glass of lemonade with Tim and Barbara and Sam and Jim, and you knew everybody on the street, and there was some, some relationship that developed there. Um, it, it might not have been deep, but it was probably better than a lot of the relationships we share today. It was a front porch society. When you, when you sat out in the evening, you sat out on the front porch. Everybody desired to have a big front porch in the front porch swing. We don't have front porches anymore. You know what we have? Backyards with nice decks. And if you really hit it big and you live in a neighborhood, well, if you really hit it big, you don't have to live in a neighborhood. But if you have to live in a neighborhood, you put a deck on the back of your house, not in the front. And if you have a little bit of extra money, you know what you love to surround your backyard with? A fence. And how high is the average fence in a backyard, would you say? About six feet. Why do you think that might be? Because then I don't need to see you. Right? I can put up a fence, I'm in my backyard, I'm in my own place, and I don't have to have any kind of relationship going on with you there. We have garage door openers now, so when we come home, I don't got to get out of my car and worry about Jim next door potentially saying hi to me. I pull that baby right in, close it, and then I get out of my car. I know, I know the guy that talks too much when you bring the garbage out, right? And so you wait until he's not out there and you run your garbage out. We've, as a society, become alarmingly separated from each other, right? Where do we shop? Do we, go to, do we go to the stores anymore to shop? Where do we shop? Online. Where do we work from now? Home. 
as a society, we are incrementally pulling ourselves away from any kind of community and lowering the total number of relationships like crazy. Here's my second observation. It would be this. Even on those low levels of interaction, those low levels of relationship, when they do exist, they are alarmingly shallow. It's as if our, our real relationships just kind of mirror our list of friends on Facebook. I have like 585 friends on Facebook or something like that. I, you know, my relationships with 575 of them are about an inch deep. I don't know them that well. I'm not in any kind of deep community with them. We communicate not in person or not on the phone or, or not by letter. Or, or we communicate by posts. And we have to figure out a way on how to communicate to each other in 144 characters or less. So the relationships, there's fewer of them, and, and they're just not as deep. And, and here's my, my point. My point is that this is having major impact on your soul, because this was not the way you were created to live. We talked about it over the last couple of weeks. Do you have any truth tellers in your life? You have any friends that could sit down and say, hey, I know you think that, you know, this is your husband's a jerk or your wife is terrible, but let me tell you, you're reacting emotionally. We talked about this last week. You're reacting emotionally and your emotions are lying to you. Your life's not that bad. See, that's not the way it is. Let me explain something. My brother's here today. Uh, my, when Glenn and I grew up, we grew up down the street from Marlene DiLorenzo. And Marlene DiLorenzo had no issues. Marlene never threatened to call my mother. Marlene somehow thought she was my mother. So it didn't matter what was happening. I was actually more afraid of Marlene DiLorenzo than I was my father because Marlene would have no problem coming out and just laying it bare like it was. We don't have these kind of... Now, Marlene would show up. Marlene was at our house on Christmas morning, and my, my mother still talks to Marlene, blah, blah. See, we don't have these kind of relationships anymore in our neighborhoods because we're not concerned really about what the highest call is, deep relationship, correction, truth-telling, speaking into somebody's lives. What we're most afraid about is, well, I better not say anything to him, her, or their kid because it might hurt their feelings. And so these relationships, there's no truth-telling. There's no heart connection. It's just this, we're all existing just to keep each other happy, and there's really no depth to what's going on. So here's the deal this morning. If you get nothing more out of this talk today, and, and the work I'm asking you to do at home through the book this week, relationships, deep, long, personal relationships, matter to your life, matter to your health, I'm going to show you that, and matter to your happiness. They matter. I know, guys... I know you don't think they matter. Relationships matter more to your life than you can possibly understand. And if you continue to not care about them, to not, to not fertilize them, to not pursue them, to just relieve, live with relational shipwrecks all behind you, you are functioning outside of the way that God created you to be. You are operating outside of the bounds of your design. And you will never find the happiness you're looking for. That's how key this relational thing is. I'm going to try to prove that to you. So with that in mind, I'm going to ask you to take your notes out. I'm going to start by giving you three reasons, three biblical reasons that these relationships matter and you should care about them and not, you should start thinking about making some resolutions about relationships. We're going to look at the fears that destroy them and how to rebuild them. 
But to do that, we got to go back, like we so often do, to the first book in the Bible when things were working right, when relationships between God and man were good, where relationships between man and man, or man and woman, as the case was, were good, where everything operated in a process, what the Bible calls, and the Jewish word is shalom, where everything was operating as God designed it to operate. But as you know... A serpent, a Satan-like figure, shows up in the scriptures and he tempts Eve with what we have all been tempted with our whole life. Which is, this is at the root of every relational disaster, by the way. Eve, if you eat of this apple, you will be like God. And since this first happened, this was, this was relational disaster number one. Here's the deal. That got built into my DNA. I very much would like to be God. And do you know why you people drive me crazy? Because you would like to be God too. This is why spouses, this is why I'm at home, right? I have certain things. If I'm God, most people should be worshiping me. I have a certain expectation of how my wife should treat her God, wouldn't you think? Yet she has a certain expectation for how her husband should treat her as God. So this sin, this falling out, really messed up maybe relationships more than anywhere else. So let me take you to the story and look at what happens, the importance of relationships and the relationships and what wrecks relationships. We're going to go back to Genesis chapter 3. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and it was pleasing to the eye and desirable for gaining wisdom, that was the trick, you can be like God, she took some and she ate it. She also gave some to her husband. Guys, listen to this. Who was with her? I never caught till this week in my mind, Eve was, all, was out like shopping at the, at the Genesis mall, right? When, when the serpent came to her and tricked her. But that's not what the scripture says. In fact, that word there with her in the Hebrew actually connotates directly there in her presence. Adam wasn't off tending the garden at home. He was right there. And he ate it. And the, and the eyes of both of them were opened. Another version of this to try to translate it in a way we would understand. What does that mean, their eyes were opened? It says that they suddenly felt shame. They suddenly felt shame and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and they made coverings from themselves. And then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God amongst the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to them, where are you? He answered, this is one of the great verses in scripture, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid. It's fears that destroy your relationships. I was afraid. Why? Because I was naked. So I hid. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, well, it's that woman you put here with me. She gave me some of the fruit. See, this is why I thought he was home, right? It's that woman you put here. She gave me some of the fruit from the tree and I ate it. And the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you've done? And the woman said, well, it's that serpent you put here in the garden. He deceived me and I ate it. And so to the woman he said, and here's where relationships, everything starts to spin out of control. I'm going to make pain in your childbearing very severe. With painful labor, you'll bring forth your children. And your desire will be for your husband. Listen to the relationship factor here. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. And, so, and for centuries, men have somehow taken that to be like, that's a good thing. That's part of the fall. Okay, that's not a good thing. To Adam, he said, because you listened to your wife and ate fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. 
or to which I commanded you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. This is, why this is why it's so hard to make a living. This is why we have to get up every day in the dark and come home in the dark. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you're going to eat from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return from the ground. Since from it you were t- taken, from dust you are, and to dust you will return. This story is brilliant. It's actually written in a poem form um, when it was originally given. In this one chapter, you see the importance of relationships, the incredible need we have for them, and we see the things, the fears the Bible teaches that destroy every relationship. And I think when we get done, you're going to see that it's these same fears, these same ones that I'm going to enumerate, the same ones the story talks about, that are ruining your relationships. Your relationships with your wife, your husband, your kids, the people you work with, your boss. So, let's lay some groundwork. First, why would relationships matter? John, of all the things, you should be talking about sin. You should be talking about war. You should be talking about... Why in the world would you go soft on us, John, and talk about relationships? Because relationships matter more than you could ever understand. I want to prove to you why. Number one. Number one reason relationships matter. Because God himself exists within a relationship. Now, none of us can explain this perfectly. We don't have any contemporary or earthly comparison for this. But God does not exist as you imagine him, some gray-bearded shepherd hook carrying sage in the sky, riding on the clouds with thunder and lightning around him. God exists in three parts. You see it right in the beginning of the Bible, in this story. I'm going to show you in a minute. Long before the name Jesus is even spoken, the doctrine of the Trinity comes on the scene. And it means that there is one God, but he eternally exists in a relationship of three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Stated differently, God is one in essence. He's three in person. The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, each one is, is, is fully, each person is fully God. There is only one God. And yet what binds the Trinitary together is love. It's, it's ruled by, the relationship is surrounded by love. You see it when Jesus prays. You see it when Jesus says, the Father and I are one. You see it when Jesus, his, his last prayer, where he starts to say, Lord, I pray that the people that follow me might understand the unity with which, in which we, we live. Because if they could ever live like that, then people would understand who I am. There's a depth of relationship. There's a depth of love in the Godhead. He's not this solitary figure. He is a triune God. I can't fully explain it. Three in one, where they they live before each other, with each other, fully known. Now, if that's true, and if every day of God's existence, he lives in full full community, full all-out love, here's the next part that's very important to understand. Point number two, you were designed to exist within a relationship. You were designed to live just like God does in a relationship like his. In Genesis, right, this is so cool. In Genesis, where where this first Trinity, Trinitarian relationship comes up, where it's first introduced, in the very first chapter of the Bible... People, if you don't know a lot of scripture, this is fascinating. Long before Jesus, long before the Holy Spirit is spoken of, in Genesis chapter 1, it's recorded, let us 
make man in our image, in our likeness. Not let me make God like, let me make man like me. God, God speaks of himself in plural form, showing his, that he lives in communal relationship, bound by love. Now what's fascinating is in the exact same sentence, he says, let us make man in our image, in our likeness. That is because you were meant to live in community. I'm going to show you where this is going to become clear in a second. God says, let's make man in our image, and that would be one designed to be in deep relationship. And so it would come as no surprise then that the second chapter in the, in the first book of the Bible says something that actually for most of us is really shocking. It's almost mind-blowing. And heck, if I wasn't pretty sure about it, I would feel like I'm preaching you blasphemy. I don't even like saying it from up front because it feels uncomfortable teaching it. But this is what God says in Genesis chapter 2. The Lord God said, It isn't good for the man to live alone. I need to make a suitable partner for him. Now, if you've been alive or even conscious for any amount of time, a long-time churchgoer, or maybe it's the first time you've ever been to church, you've heard this verse, it is not good for man to be alone. It's kind of become part of our, our cultural nomenclature. It's not good for man to be alone. Yet this was not a revelation for God. It wasn't like God said, shoot, probably should have put somebody else back down there with him. No, this is, God understood this because he created man in his image with this desire to be in this deep relationship. And so he's teaching you and I something when he's writing this. And here's what he's saying to you and I. It's not good for you to be alone. It's not like you just realize it. This is here because you and I need to get blown away by this truth to understand the depth, the importance of relationships. I'm going to teach I'm going to teach this to you, but hopefully it'll come through loud and clear as you, as you bring some renewed focus on it this week as you do some of the devotions. But here's the question. You ready for the question? No, probably nobody's ever asked you this unless you've hung around with me lately because I can't get past this truth. God says it's not good for man to be alone in the garden. Here's the question. Was man alone in the garden? He wasn't alone in the garden. He wasn't alone. First off, he had the companionships of lots of pets. Right? You cat people. There's cats and, and dogs and, you know, hippos and rhinos and platypuses. And he could cuddle up, you know, at night with as many animals as he wanted to cuddle up with. God didn't look and go, oh, it's okay. The future cat ladies of the world, this will be okay. The cat will meet your need. The dog, you know, as some of us have raised our dogs, the dog will meet your need for companionship. The Bible says that's the truth. Here's what else the Bible says. The Bible also says that in that garden, God was in his most tangible presence that the world has ever known, apart from Jesus. He was totally accessible, very real, and very present in form. God was the first voice that woke Adam up in the morning. God was the the singer of the lullaby which put Adam to sleep at night. God was the God that would come along in the evening and walk through the cool of the garden with Adam at night. And yet God looks down and goes, it's not good for him to be alone. God is essentially saying this. I created you so that I am not enough for you. Sounds kind of blasphemous. Because we've mostly been told all I need is God. It's not true. That's not the way God created you. God created you so that he alone, this was his plan, his idea, 
that he alone is not enough for you. You need to be in a relationship with others. And if you are not, well, in all of my, you know, it's funny. God goes through and he says about each thing he creates. He, he creates the heavens and the earth and he says, this is good. And he, he creates the animals and he says, this is good. And he, he creates man and he says, this is good. And then he looks at man alone and what does he say? This is not good. This is not good. And so if you've ever heard someone say, oh, I don't need anyone. I'm a self-made man. I, I'm an island in my, I don't need to go to church. It's just me and God right here. And we got Joel Osteen. I'm going to put him on. And I'm listening to a little Andy Stanley. And I'm telling you, that is not biblical. You are functioning outside of the way you were created. You were created to be known in deep relationship and intimacy. And if you keep thinking it doesn't matter, you're shipwrecking your life. You're never going to get what you're looking for. Science keeps proving this stuff. This stuff was written 6,000 years ago. Here's what I want you to think about this, right? So, I, I, over the course of human history, one of the most devastating, hard to believe, but one of the most devastating disciplines of the correctional system has been solitary confinement. You probably heard the term in terms of reference to prisons and prisoners who, who cause trouble. They put them in, in solitary. But it's used increasingly so in the last couple of years as a means of torture. In fact, most prison systems are now eliminating solitary confinement because it's being considered torture. Why? Who, why? why would it be so bad to be alone? In fact, I kind of like being alone. <laughs> right? You have enough kids, you start going, I wouldn't mind a couple days of solitary. In an article entitled, Why Solitary Confinement is the Worst Kind of Psychological Torture, George Dvorsky wrote this, Human beings are social creatures. Without the benefit of another person to bounce off of, the mind decays. Without anything to do, the mind atrophies. And without the ability to see off into the distance, vision fades. Isolation and loss of control. Here come all the fears that come out of relationships. Isolation and loss of control breeds anger, anxiety, and hopelessness. Psychologist Terry Kruper says that solitary confinement, listens to this, destroys people as human beings. Thousands of years later, it's not good for man to be alone. A quick glance at literature reviewing studies about solitary confinement confirms this. Here are some of the typical symptoms that they see with people who have been in solitary. Anxiety, depression. Listen up. Any of these sound familiar? as we have relational wrecks all over the place, anxiety, depression, anger, cognitive disturbances, I love this one, perceptual distortions, right? We don't have anybody in our life saying, man, you're, you're totally off base on that. Perceptual distortions, paranoia and psychosis and self-harm. In California, it's been shown that inmates in isolation, are you ready for this, are 33 times more likely to commit suicide than another prisoner. 33 times more likely. God was right when he said, it is not good for you to be alone, and yet not one of us has ever made a New Year's resolution that said, I've got to work on my relationships. So if you get nothing else out of today, take that out of it. I need to bring some new priority to the relationships in my life. The reason I am in the condition I am might be because I, my relationships are in a the condition they're in. Here's the last thing, the last reason that relationships should really matter to you. It's because love, our highest calling and desire, exists and is experienced 
only in relationship. Scripture's clear about this, right? The three most important things are faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of them is love. Above everything else, love each other deeply. Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. If you're not in healthy relationships, you cannot have or know love. Love is the greatest gift God has given us. To be fully known and to be loved is the greatest desire of God's heart for you. And so few of us realize it, recognize it, or experience it. It's the single greatest gift that God has given us. It's the single greatest gift you have to give anybody. And it doesn't happen outside of relationship. If we're we're not in healthy relationships, you cannot know love. Yet, if we're honest, so many of us absolutely stink at relationships. I've told my wife, and I don't mean this is a politically incorrect word, and I I don't mean it the way it sounds, but I was born relationally retarded. I appear somewhere inside to have a depth only to which I can go relationally. And I've kind of discovered some of that this week about why, and I'm going to talk about that because here's the truth. I think some of you, I know some of you, and you people have some issues too. (laughs) I think the story of Adam and Eve in the first relational failure lays out for us four fears. I'm going to give you why this is. Four fears that ruin our relationships. I think it's true in every relationship. I think it's best seen in the the marital relationship because if the marital relationship is the highest prize of human relationships, those four fears are going to be best seen in that relationship. But these are the same fears that ruin your relationships with your kids and your, your workmates and your boss. Let me look at the first one. The first one's the most important. My fear of being found out makes me hide. My fear of being found out makes me hide. Now, if you're like me, you struggle relationally. Don't get me wrong. Somebody on staff this week said, John, you're the best at relationships. I said, no, I'm not. If you put me in a room with a lot of strangers, you would think I'm the best at relationships. But I, am, I fall prey to the societal two-inch deep thing. I'm not really good at relationships. I'm not good at deep intimacy to what the Bible would say is called being known Allowing myself to be known. I'll talk to you all day about the Mets and the Cowboys. I'll talk to you about Jesus. But don't push me too deep into my own soul. Maybe if you're like me, you've had that feeling. This week, and men, we experience this with our wives. Wives, we experience this with our husbands. Why is it? We feel it with our kids too, especially as our kids get older. Why is it that I used to be able to relate with you on a soul level, but now it seems like I can't get there anymore? I can't get as deep in this relationship. I would like to be deeper with you, but there's something, there's something missing in the connection. If you would describe that feeling, if you got close to getting there one day, when you sit on the couch and you say, you know, we should probably talk about this, why is it that you don't? The answer is fear. And the number one reason that you fear is you're afraid of people finding you out. Stick with me on this. Here's the deal. We're afraid of people knowing who we really are at our deepest level. Not the person that they see on the outside. Not the funny guy. Not the athletic guy. Not the beautiful girl. Not the hard-charging executive. We know people accept those things about us. If you have kids, and I've said this to my kids over the years... It happens usually in their early teen years. They start to try on different personalities. You, you, you ever notice this when you have like teenagers? Suddenly, like, it's like you picked up a different kid at the middle school that day. And they get in the back and you're like, 
And I, I've said to them, like, why, why are you saying that? Why are you talking like that? Oh, this is just the way I am. And I'm going, he said, I saw you at breakfast. What changed? <laughs> you know, they, they take on, they try out. We all do it. It's part of kind of the development, de developmental process. We try out personalities. I'm going to see if this one works. See if people like me more like this. Well, they don't like me like that. I'll see if this one. Maybe I'll be the quiet guy, the quiet intellectual. Maybe I'll be the funny guy. Maybe, maybe I'll be the upfront speaker. Maybe I'll be the, the athlete. Maybe I'll be the fighter. And so we try on these personalities, right? And, and so when we find one that works, that's the problem, because then we live that. It doesn't really matter who we really are. We found what everybody wants us to be, and so we start to live out of that. And then the reason I don't want to get too deep with you is because I actually know the thoughts that go through my head. I know what I'm thinking. I know about my stuff. I know about my insecurities. I know about my blemishes. And I don't want you to know about that. I want you to think I'm funny or strong or athletic. So I'm going to keep it up here. This is the best verse. In verses 9 to 10, God calls to Adam. He goes, Adam, why are you hiding? And Adam said, I was afraid, hear fear, because I was naked, and so I hid. Adam says, I got scared and I hid. Fear in our relationships always causes us to hide from one another. This morning, there are places in your relationships with your kids and with your spouse and with the people at work where you don't want to go to, you don't want to know about, so you hide. Why don't I want to open my kids' phones and read their texts? Why? Because I'm afraid about what I want to see. Why don't, why isn't every couple in this church that's having marriage problems, why aren't we all, why isn't there a line 10 miles long to the marriage counselor? Why? Because we're afraid. Afraid of what's going to come up there. I'm afraid that I'm going to get exposed. Why, why don't you just go and deal with this? Why don't you talk to them? Why don't you tell them? Well, because I don't, I don't want to do that. Afraid. Afraid of what he might say or, or she might think. We're so afraid of what the others think. We hide. Fear in our relationships with one another, even in our good relationships, are what make us hide. But the great fear of Adam, more than anything else with this, Adam said, I was afraid. Why? Because I was naked. And see, the Bible is not just speaking about physical nakedness, although there is a lot to be learned from even that, right? The truth is, why are we so afraid of being naked? In the first service, somebody said, for a moment, I thought you were going to undress up there. But... Have no fears. The truth is, why is it that even in our marriages, very few of us are very confident of saying, let me just take off my clothes and stand here naked before you. Most of us say, turn the lights off. Why? Is there kids in here? <laughs> the head elder reminded me. Why? Because once I do that, then it's... Then I don't have anything to hide behind anymore. You're going to see me as I really am. You're going to see me just as I am. And I'm afraid that you might not be impressed by me, or you might, you might laugh at me, or you might think differently about me. If you've, gone to, if you've been on the middle school soccer team, and the coach said, after practice today, everybody's showering, and you're in eighth grade, you know what that felt like. I don't want to go in there and take my clothes off. Why? Because I look a certain way. I have a certain rep. And when I get in there and I take all this, when I drop this stuff off, I'm naked. I'd much rather hide behind my clothes. But the Bible's actually not just talking about your clothes. 
The Bible's talking about something that goes much deeper than that. We hide, Adam hid behind a fig leaf. You and I hide in the 21st century. We hide behind all kinds of creative fig leaves, we've, elaborate fig leaves we've made for ourselves. Maybe the best way this is seen is, is, um, is, is with your kids, how, and how we've adopted these personalities as we grow up, right? But it's behind, I mean, we're all hiding behind some character we've created. We went to a men's retreat, Joe Fleck, one of our elders. He, he said something at that elder retreat, I can't get past. We're talking, John Eldridge does some work on this for men called posers. We're all posers at some level. And there's an example that Eldridge gives. And so this week, the church van broke down, right? And so I brought it down to Mike's Friendly Service. Shout out to Mike's Friendly Service in Flanders. And so Mike, because I, I bring cars there all the time, I, he should name a child after me. Mike calls me, and he says to me, hey, John, I just want to let you know. Uh, and he starts rattling off what's wrong with the car. I have no idea what the heck Mike is talking about. I can barely open the hood of my car, right? But I don't say to him, Mike, don't, I say, oh, yeah, about, caliber? No caliber, Okay. Uh, carburetor? Yeah, we'll probably need to clean that out, right? And he goes, you know, the cars are not the carburetor. They need to be cleaned in 20 years. But I fake it because somehow I care that Mike might think I'm less than a man. Joe Fleck had this great... Joe Fleck, we, we put this uh, men's retreat together. We had all these guys go out there. And at night, we were having campfires. And we said, let's do a manly thing. We're going to get cigars, and we're going to smoke them around the campfire. So Joe Fleck went out to, um, to uh, J&R on Route 10. And, uh, and he said, I'm going to go get some cigars. Joe goes, I've never smoked a cigar in my life. And if you've been to JNR Tobacco's, it's a, fair, well, it's a very cool place, but it's a fairly intimidating place. Their humidor is as big as our church. It's got a restaurant in it and a bar, and it's several stories tall. And so here comes Joe Flack in to buy cigars for the men's retreat. And the guy says to him, Can I help you? Nope. I'm good. <laughs> He's about to head to a men's retreat to talk about how we pose, and it hits him. What am I doing? I'm, I don't know anything about these cigars. Why am I so intimidated that that guy might think less than me? I was naked, so I hid. You and I create all kinds of elaborate fig leaves that we hide so nobody knows who we really are. Listen, it's seen nowhere better than your Facebook or your Instagram, right? That's the biggest fig leaf I've got going right now. Hey, everybody, look at the Eismans. Aren't they perfect? Kids are beautiful. Nice dog. <laughs> Posted the other night, Joan and I, date night. Truth is, on Thursday, I could have wrote fight night. <laughs> right? Because I weave this fig leaf for you. I was afraid because I was naked, and so I hid. I'm afraid to tell you who I really am. I'm afraid you might reject me. I'm afraid if you really know what was going on in my head. I'm afraid I'd rather just keep posing for you. Story also teaches us about another vital relationship that gets ruined when we feel shame. And that's when we feel shame in our sin, we not only hide from each other, we create these elaborate fig leaves. I've got a big job, a big house, a big car. I'm a success. I'm a tough guy. My kid's the best wrestler on the team. We create all these fig leaves. And the other thing we do is when we caught, when it starts to unravel, we hide in the bushes from God. It destroys our primary relationship, which was supposed to be with God all the time. I felt some shame, God, because I knew I was doing something I wasn't. So instead of being drawn towards you in your forgiveness, I'm just running away from you. I really don't want to deal with you, God. Even though God says perfect love casts out all fear, come to me. Second, 
The second fear that ruins your relationships is this. My fear of disapproval makes me defensive. Do we have any defensive people in the house? I have a, a friend that I talk to every two weeks, and if you're defensive, he, he, he said to me years ago, probably 15 years ago, he said, you're, you got a defensive issue. He said, you're way too defensive. You don't like criticism. And I talk to him all the time, and he always says, how's it going? I hate, don't you see, this is the kind of guy that I actually have that relationship with, and I got to love hate with it. But he'll say to me, how's it going on that defensive issue? Are you open to people speaking in your life? Are you, are you open to criti criticism? Man, and when, 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 when we start to think that we might, somebody's going to criticize us, we throw, our solution is throw blame. The scripture says, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, well, it's a woman you put here with me. She gave me the fruit from the tree and I ate it. And the Lord God said to the man, well, what have you done? And the woman said, well, the serpent deceived me. It wasn't my fault. I mean, it's your fault for letting him in here, and I ate it. You know how this goes. Oh, hey, hon. Notice on the credit card statement this month that you got your nails done twice. So I was just wondering, well, you seem to have no problem playing golf three times a month with your friends, do you? And going out for all those fancy lunches at work every day while I sit home with these kids you gave me. And now you're going to talk to me about getting my nails done twice. Now, I just made that up. I want you to know. That was just... <laughs> Actually, I had to pick something my wife doesn't do. <laughs> so it didn't relate. But see, we immediate, the minute you start to feel any disapproval, blame, 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 blame. It's destroying your relationships. Hey, Billy, I noticed your grades went down in physics last market period. How am I supposed to keep my grades up in physics when, when you've got me in all these sports and I'm going to these private clubs and this stupid computer, it never works, and the printer's always out of ink and the dog ain't my homework? Just ask me. Watch for it in your relationships this week, you guys. Watch for it. Feel it in your flesh. The minute you sense somebody disapproving of you, feel it rise up and feel it go, blame, blame. It's a relational killer. Third relational killer, my fear of loss makes me controlling. My fear of loss makes me controlling. As part of the fall, what's going on in the garden? God says to Eve, your desire is going to be for your husband, and he's going to rule over, with you, rule over you. Another version put it this way, and it's actually closer to the Hebrew meaning of the word, because it's the same word there when it talks about sin is knocking at your door, and will try to t take control of you. It says this, you will desire to control your husband, but he will rule over you. In that moment in the garden, it's all coming apart. This perfect symbiotic relationship is spinning out of control. Once our desires were for one another, for your happiness, you were worried about my happiness, and suddenly these relationships move from being about that to blaming and being about, in a sense, our own happiness. And when we fear that we might lose something that's going to impact us, we do everything we can to control it. You ever seen controlling marriages? You ever been the spouse that might fear that the other one's leaving? Control. I've got to control this. I see it in marriages a lot. I'll tell you where else I see it, and kind of in funny areas, is uh, in mother-son relationships. You mommies love your boys very much. And it's really hard to let them go, isn't it? 
Now, I, my brother-in-law, he, he doesn't listen to this podcast, although some people here might tell him this, but there's a great story where I see this in my, I see this so true. My, he, my brother-in-law is a 45-year-old, big, burly Italian guy and, you know, captain of the football team, strongest guy at Gold's Gym, and his mother is like right off the boat from Italy, and this was her only baby boy. And my sister took him away, that witch. <laughs> if you go to Marco's house today, it's not an exaggeration, if you go into his bedroom, it looks exactly the way it looked when he walked out of it at 45 years, or 30 years ago. The football helmet's still on the dresser. There's an eternal flame set right underneath a, a high school picture of him. See, fear of loss will make you so controlling in your relationship. Suddenly, Eve starts to say, this relationship isn't about Adam. This is about me, and I need to control this. Her desire is, I'm going to, be, I'm going to take control of this situation now. Lastly, my fear of insignificance makes me dominating. My fear of insignificance makes me dominate. Think about what happened in the garden. Man is at the peak of creation. He's walking with God. He's working with God. He's ruling over the dominion of everything that God had created. And suddenly, he's outside. Not so significant. And when man goes from being the center of creation to being put outside of the garden, when he's faced with a new lower, in a sense, position, in our relationships, when this happens, right, when we, when we, when we feel as if, that if I'm not getting enough significance from you, then I'm going to have to dominate you to show you that, that I am who I am. Let me ask you a question. How many of your marriages are loaded with competitiveness? Loaded with it. Joan and I can't play games. Always ends the same way, right? I can play games with you, but there's something in that dynamic, that closeness of that dynamic where, you know, we play trivia crack. I don't know if you're playing trivia crack. <laughs> See? See the problem here? It's this woman that he gave me. <laughs> the problem, like, I, so you get these coins in trivia crack, which you can use to, like, answer some of the questions. Well, I wouldn't waste any of my coins on playing you people. I got to beat Joan, right? So I'll burn my coins up so I can beat her. See, this is an issue for men. I think the controlling one speaks a lot of times, not all the time, but a lot of times the stuff that's going on in women's lives. I think this, and this is kind of part of the curse. I think the other part here is men have such a desire for significance, they wind up taking it and using it to dominate as many people as they can, and it ruins relationships. My, at the heart of my relationship is I want to be in control. This is why you're not happy in your job at work. This is why you want his job. This relationship is not based on what's mutually good for both of us. This relationship is based on me getting some significance about getting ahead of you. So how do we fix this? Quickly, I'll just wrap up with this. How do we get our relationships right? The first way is this. It's going to sound familiar, but what can I tell you? This is what the scriptures teach. The number one way to have and restore healthy relationships in your life is to get your relationships back in proper order. To get your relationships back in proper order. You were created first and foremost to have and be in relationship. But the problem is what are you looking for in those relationships you can only get from a relationship with God. Wives from your husbands. Husbands from your wives. All of us from our kids and our work. We're looking for love and security and validation and acceptance and forgiveness. 
We're looking for self-worth. We're looking for somebody to get to respect us in these relationships. We create these elaborate fig leaves that we live under so that you'll think something about me. We allow what others say to us and think about us to be our highest calling. Listen, why is it that I can so completely remember being some girl saying that I was ugly in eighth grade, but it doesn't matter what the scripture says that God thinks about me? Why is that? Why is that? I inverted the relationships. I started to allow others to become God. I started to to, to let them, their opinions of me, count so much more than what the truth is of what God says about me. We strive to impress each other. In a sense, we want to, I want you to worship me. You want me to worship you. And so we'll do whatever we can. We will be powerful. We'll be funny. We'll be kind. We'll be loving. We'll be beautiful. We want, we want society's approval, our kids' approval. I want the other dads at the wrestling matches' approval. You want the other mothers at the PTA meetings' approval. We create elaborate fig leaves, and what God is saying is you've inverted the relationship. Everything you're looking for, you can find in me. Why do you keep trying to get it from other people? You're ruining your relationships trying to get this from other people. They can't give it to you. It's wrecking your relationships. you got to get your relationships right. All of those things you're looking for don't come from man. They come from God. You've got to abide with God and believe it. There's a devotion in there this week that'll help you do that. Second thing, stop hiding from God and others. Stop hiding from God and others. See, the greatest desire of your heart is actually to be fully known. You once were naked and unashamed. The way you're designed and we're created was to be fully known, but we've created elaborate fig leaves and we hide. If the answer in part one is to to abide in God, to get our relationships right, to to not look for all these things from other people, but to get our value and self-worth from God, then number two here is the same. You've got, as all the other ones, you've got to get into some deep community and stop hiding. You've got to get into some, look, if you need marriage counseling, you should go get some marriage counseling. If you need addiction counseling, you should go get some addiction counseling. If you don't have any friends, if you don't have anybody that say, hey, how's it going on you being a defensive jerk, if you don't have anybody that's saying that in your life, you need to go find somebody. You were created to be known, and so few of us have relationships like that. That's why I keep pressing you to get into groups. I've got a new one starting at my house today at 3, 3.30. You want to be in that? You can come to my house today. I'm sorry. 15 people or so are going to be there. You want to come get in a group and meet some other people? Start to make yourself known, right? We all start naked. It's a very, it breaks down the walls right away. There's a joke. Come. Come. 3.30 if you want to do that. Come talk to me after the service. But you've got to find somebody to be real with. You've got to stop hiding. And lastly, I'm going to give you an incredibly practical one. But if, you, if there's a devotion in there to help you do this this week, this is incredibly practical about relationships. The scriptures say this, be quick to listen and slow to speak. Be quick to listen and slow to speak. Here's what you and I are. We are slow to listen and quick to speak. There is rarely a conversation that I engage in when I listen to anybody. I'm, have you found yourself doing this? Somebody's talking to you and all you're thinking about is what you're going to say back. What you're going to say back. What you're going to say back. It, it inverts, it screws up the relationship. You're trying to get all those things back. Be slow, slow to speak. Be quick to listen. And the scripture actually says, what kind of comes natural out of that is, you'll be slow to anger. You actually will hear somebody and listen to them and not make it about your agenda. Let me ask the band to come up and pray. Father, Lord, my great prayer is that
both the pastor and the people today would understand at newfound levels the importance of relationships with our spouses and with our kids and with our friends and that we would not believe the lie, Lord, that we are fine on our own, that we don't need anybody in our life. Lord, would you help us overcome it? Because the truth is many of us don't feel the need for this, but it's, it's a desperate one. I ask it in Jesus' name.